Joel Osteen, a televangelist and author based in Houston, Texas, wrote his first book in 2004. It was entitled, Your Best Life Now. Jesus Christ, the itinerant preacher based in Nazareth, preached his first recorded, or the text of the sermon, his first recorded sermon in Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 20. This is his first sermon, and let me tell you something. His sermon could never, ever be entitled your best life now. It, it wouldn't work. You ask, why wouldn't that work? Take your Bibles. Let's turn to the, the actual manuscript, at least as Luke has brought out what he recorded of that sermon. In Luke chapter 6, take your Bibles and let's turn to Luke chapter 6. I want you to find verse 20. And as I read the opening, really the introduction to Jesus' sermon, I want you to see if it could ever be entitled, Your Best Life Now. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. The text of the living God says, And turning his gaze toward his disciples. So he's speaking to a crowd, a large crowd of would-be followers of Christ. And he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. Verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. War to you, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. Could that sermon be titled, Your Best Life Now? Does that title of that book, Your Best Life Now, sound like true biblical Christianity to you? Does that sound like true discipleship? Jesus cares about this. He cares for us to know the difference for these would-be disciples who are gathered. That's the label of who's listening to this. He cares for us to know those who claim to be followers of God. In that case, it was Judaism. In our case, those who claim to believe in God, to know Jesus. He wants us to know if we are genuine disciples of Christ or if we're not. This is the whole point of the sermon. This is the opening of his sermon. The sermon closes with this. It closes of, of the difference. He wants us to know the difference between a foundation that is built on the, upon the rock 
of the Messiah, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and a, a religion, a foundation that is sinking sand, that is built upon the sand of self-righteousness. He wants us to know the difference. What does a true disciple look like? Well, last time that I preached, and thank you, Pastor Dan, for your sermon last week. It was very helpful. Now we're back to the book of Luke for visitors. Last time that I preached, the blessed true disciple was described by Jesus in verses 20 through 23. The blessed true disciple. And that true disciple of Jesus was described as the destitute one, the hungry one, the sad one, the persecuted one. Your best life now? And we discovered, and this is important, just listen to this, I'm not, I can't prove it again, but that the emphasis, the primary emphasis on all of those descriptions was not the physical, but the spiritual. And that is true of all of verses 20 through 26. So those descriptions of the blessed man are, are, are not primarily physical, but spiritual. It's spiritual destitution. It's spiritual hunger. It's a spiritual so sorrow. And that, when, and that person, those people will manifest itself in the world, and they, as they manifest that heart, that spiritual heart, they will be persecuted for the sake of the Son of Man from time to time in that day. So, what was that destitution, that hunger, and that weeping, just in summary? What was that spiritual hunger, weeping, and destitution? Well, the true disciple, the blessed one, the blessed one, the happy one, the joy-filled one, he knows his need before God. He feels the weight of the burden of his sin. He's helpless to please God. He's hopeless before God. And he feels it. He, he knows that he is naked spiritually. And, and he knows he needs to be clothed, not by fig leaves. He needs to be clothed by someone else's righteousness. Because his is very weak, very imperfect. And he's a sinner through and through. And, and he feels it. And he hungers for that true righteousness. And knows that he can't produce it. It has to come. He knows a little bit of the scriptures. It must come from God alone. And so he goes and he begs God. He, he cannot earn it. He weeps when he falls short of it. He weeps when he looks at the result of his sin in his relationships. The result of the world's sin and the fallenness and the curse upon this world. He weeps for sin. The blessed one right now is that spiritually destitute one. But why would we call him happy and blessed? Because that blessed one, Jesus says, right now has the kingdom of God. He, he has a source of joy and gladness. And in fact, even in the day of persecution, so fixed is his hope that in that day he can even leap for joy for his is the kingdom of God. You see, a, a true disciple, Jesus is saying, listen, has been humbled before God so that he's been forced to find his happiness in God alone. And that humble happiness manifests itself as light to the world, and the world sometimes don't like it. That is the tr a picture of the true disciple. So that's what we looked at last time, and those four evidences of true discipleship. And now today, we're going to turn now to verses 24 through 26, and a fascinating passage because Jesus is now going to give us four evidences of false discipleship. And, and he's going to mirror, his outline is perfectly mirrored. And you'll see that as we go. And notice that as, as we try to figure this out, I don't want us to check out. This is about discerning discipleship. 
This is about discerning if you're a follower of Christ. And even as followers of Christ, we're going to get great encouragement from this. And I think even as followers of Christ, we're going to need to repent too. So keep that in mind as I go. Woe is pronounced. Woe is pronounced on false disciples. Woe is me. It's kind of an old term. It's hard to get our woe. It's not woe. It's Jesus saying, woe to you. And that's how he said it. Woe to you. This is, whatever it is, woe is pronounced on false disciples. And it is the opposite of whatever happiness and joy is. It's opposite of blessing. What's the opposite of blessing? Cursing. And there's the feel of the new Moses speaking here and a lot of Deuteronomy flowing out of this passage. The blessings and the curses. And so woe is a word of not happiness, but woe is misery. When Jesus says woe to you in verses 24 through 26, but listen, this is what I love about Christ and about the word. This word woe is not like Jesus is excited about their destiny. Woe. It's the, the word itself, if you study the word itself, and I did a little bit of study on this, the word itself, woe, has a sense of pain by the speaker of the woes. Pain and pity for the pain and pitifulness of the destiny of the one that he's speaking about. It, it's, it's pity. As one has said, it's pity because of the judgment that awaits someone in the condition described here. So when you hear Jesus say, whoa, don't see him angry and spitting fire. See, a, see his lip trembling and a tear in the corner of his eyes. He, there's a pity in the word woe as well as a warning. This is the heart of of our Christ. He does not delight for people to be in this position at all. He's not about judging them. He is pronouncing judgment, but he came to seek and to what? Save the lost. He's coming to help them. He's coming to give them spiritual smelling salts. He's coming to wake them out from 400 years of darkness and false religion that has been steeped and pinnacled in the religion of the Pharisees of self-righteousness. He wants to help them. He wants to make, help them get out of this. And so he preaches. And this is the role of preachers throughout all eternity. This is our role. He wants to help us to see it. That he's here. I'm seeking you. Please, don't be in this category. Woe to you. That's the heart of the woes here. And he still speaks today. He's alive today. He's still doing that today. And whatever you do, please do not leave this sermon being in the woe category. I mean it. You can get saved right there in your seat. In the middle of the sermon, you can cry out to the Lord. You can walk in, unsaved, walk out, forgiven, righteous in Christ, a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is the day. Don't leave. Believe me. Don't leave under the woes. This is the point of the sermon. And so, how do you know then if you're a false disciple? There are four evidences of false discipleship. Number one, the rich. The rich. Who is this? Verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Now track with me. This is not talking primarily about physical riches. It doesn't shift back to the physical in verse 24, and it was spiritual earlier. No. It's all, this is spiritual riches. And it's and it's their woes. So how do we interpret this? 
Is it true that a rich man may have a tendency to depend upon his riches and not need Christ? Yes. And, and that's part of this, but that's not the main point. Here it is. Here's what he's saying. A spiritually rich individual that is yet under the woe is a, is a, is a man or a woman or a child that says in their own way, God, you know me. I'm a red-blooded American, freedom fighter, patriot. I'm a good guy. I'm a good kid. My parents tell me that. I, I go to church. I give money to the church. I'm a good neighbor. I do my homework. I don't do drugs. I keep away from breaking the law. I serve others. The spiritually rich here are those that really believe that they are believers. They really believe that they are believers because they understand the truth and, and they've tried really hard and, and what they've done is God's going to see that and he's, he's, he's a merciful, loving God and it, it's going to be what God sees, he's going to say, you know, come on into my heaven. I know you've done your best. I know you're trying real hard. God would accept me. To be spiritually rich in this context then is to think that in yourself and the things that you do that you will be able to stand before God and you're going to be okay. To be spiritually rich is not to be humble before God like and needy like a beggar that can't help himself but to be prideful before God and says this, if there's a good God who's rational and it sees the darkness of this world and sees my neighbors and sees what I've been through and sees the hand that I've been dealt and sees my wife or sees my husband or sees my kids or sees my job who knows actually the issues of my life and knows that I am muddling through as best that I can, there is no way a good God and a loving God who's seen what I've been through and seen what I've put up with would ever condemn me. No way, not if this is true. He's going to understand the issues. He's been watching my life. Then I should go to heaven. That person is spiritually rich in and of himself before God. And Jesus pronounces a woe upon them. The example of this is the parable that Jesus told as was read of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke 18, some people trusted in themselves, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And the Pharisee in Luke 18, verse 11, remember, stood up so everyone could notice him, hands lifted to heaven. You just see him looking around because he saw the old tax collector by the edge. Not like that one over there. And he said, he prayed this to himself, God, I thank you. That I'm not like other people, swindlers and unjust adulterers and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. I, 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 I. Woe to you who are spiritually rich. Why? Why? Why are they cursed? Why are you cursed? Where Jesus says, he gives the reason for you are receiving your comfort in full. It's so comfortable. If you can just do enough and be average or just a little better than average, in the darkness of this world, that's really not that hard. It's a super comfortable position to just have a theology of salvation that just hedges your bets and just has to be 51%. Tip the scales yourself by your own righteousness. It's a very comfortable position. It allows you just to chill and just to relax and just to go for everything the world offers. Just 51% better. And here's what Jesus is saying. That might be comfortable, but you're getting all of your joy. You're getting everything right now. You are receiving your comfort in full. If you are under these woes, 
I don't even know what to say. I say repent and trust in Christ. But part of me says live it up now because in the end it's not going to be good. Now I mean that. This text says you have received your payment or your comfort in full. That's an interesting Greek word, the idea of receiving your comfort. It's a technical commercial business term, this reception. It's an idea where, okay, you go buy a lawnmower, and then you, have, you get a receipt, right? It's a receipt, paid in full. You got your lawnmower. The purchase has been made. Here's what Jesus is saying. If, if you are in this state, um, the spiritually rich and satisfied, right there, You've, you've, you've got everything you're ever going to have spiritually right now. You've got the receipt to prove it. It's purchased. It's going to wear out. That lawnmower is going to die. And in the end, you're not purchasing anything else. You've blown it all. It's right there. There's your receipt. You've got your best life now. The receipt's proven it. It's over. You've received it in full. There is nothing else coming spiritually. Do you hear what he's saying? There's nothing else coming. You have the receipt to prove it. It's done. It's over. You received your payment, your comfort in full. It's right now. You spent your money. You say to God, I have enough before you. And God says, that's all you will ever have before me. Let me say that again. You say to God, I have enough before you. And God says, that is all you will ever have before me. It's spent. It's purchased. In the end, woe to you because you will have absolutely nothing. You'll be completely spiritually bankrupt with nothing of value to look forward to in the future. You are receiving your comfort in full now. There is no comfort at all. In the future, for the spiritually rich right now, in and of themselves, only future bankruptcy before God. You say, what does that look like? Let's go on to the second one. So let's fill this out. The second evidence of a false disciple, the cursed disciple, the woe-filled disciple is one spiritually described as the satisfied. Number two, the satisfied. Who is this? Number 20, uh, verse 25. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. The true disciple hungers and thirsts for righteousness. But the false disciple who claims to know the Messiah, claims to be a believer, they're spiritually, same, same idea, just getting a different metaphor. They're spiritually well fed now. They got it going now. They're just fine. They look at their own efforts, they look at their own works, they look at their own sincerity, they look at all of these things and they say, I've got everything I need, I'm sad, woe to you, are well found now, I lack nothing, I'm totally filled up, I'm content with what I've done and controlling my own future. And so they offer that effort and their life to God with some sense of fullness, of some sense of voila of some sense of, wow, of some sense of God. What shall we do next? Some, some level of confidence. Woe to you who feel that way, who are well-fed spiritually now. You see how it connects to the first one? He's just building upon it. They're satisfied with their own righteousness. Okay, why... Why the woe on that person? Jesus gives the reason. That's what the word for means. It's a reason. Why the woe? For you shall be hungry. Why, why is Jesus full of pity and tears and pain for, the, for, the, for those people? Because he says, you shall be hungry. And he's speaking of billions of years into the future. He's speaking of eternity here. The, this is the hunger of eternal hell, the hunger of eternal hell, the gnawing deep hunger pains of never being satisfied in 
all eternity. I don't know. I, it's interesting what I've been through lately and some people I've talked to about hunger. Jesus himself was hungry to the point of death for 40 days and 40 nights. The pain of hunger, the deep, gnawing hunger pains of never being satisfied for all eternity. And Jesus says, whoa, please, this does, don't let this be you. The gut-wrenching for year after year after year, the gut-wrenching realization. You ever kicked yourself for a bad decision? Come on, lost a few bucks. Get over it. Here's the biggest decision you'll ever make right now. The gut-wrenching realization that you put your hope in the wrong person. Me, or the church, or your mom, or your grandmother. It was Jesus. It was him all along, and I missed it. The gnawing, deep realization, gut-wrenching realization that you hoped for your life in this life instead of clinging to Christ, who would give you the righteousness that you needed, who would save you. You said you were satisfied right now, that you wanted your own way. And Jesus says, whoa. You'll never be satisfied. And one pastor says, hell for them will be a constant hungering and never being satisfied. The gnawing in their guts, their worm will never die. They had it all in this life. They had nothing in the life to come because they did not have Christ. These are not my words. These are the words of Jesus the third evidence of a false disciple, the cursed disciple, the woe-filled disciple is one spiritually described as the jolly. You can put the happy there. Don't put the joyful. That wouldn't work. But I'll, let's put the jolly because it captures the Greek word. The jolly. Who is this? Woe to you, he, he continues on, who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Jesus is not condemning laughter of any kind here for sure. This is a, come on, you got it. Let's keep our hermeneutic, our biblical interpretation. Let's stay consistent. This is a spiritual laughter. This is a metaphor. He's the great teacher. This is spiritual laughter. This is an attitude, a frame of, my, of mind. This is a light, listen, this is, this is the natural result of that satisfaction. There's a lightheartedness before God. Whatever. Stay on the shelf, buddy. It's a lightheartedness about this whole thing. You've seen it. You've felt it even in your own life as a believer. It's a lightheartedness. There's no humility before God. I am just fine. I am comfortable before God, and I love to feel comfortable. I'm happy with my stuff. I'm happy with my sin. I'm doing, I, I got it weighed out. It doesn't make me sad. This, uh, this world and its pleasures are fun. Yes, and you better not get in the way of my happiness. And most of the time, I'm just going to please you so I can stay happy and try to keep you contented, especially you religious ones. But if, you, if I can't, I'm going to, and you get in my way. That's the jolly. That's the spiritual laughter here. Ha, ha, ha. Isn't that funny? Laughing it up. This sort of laughter is, this, is one... Greek scholar said, quotes, is tied to laughter that is boastful and self-satisfied and condescending and sometimes even rejoices at the harm that others experience, end quotes. It's not a godly joy. It's laughing it up, being satisfied in self, content with the trinkets and the passing pleasures of the world. Why does Jesus pronounce in pity, in pity, and warning, woe to you who laugh now. Why? For, there's a reason, for you shall mourn, you shall, future tense, you shall mourn and weep. What is that referring to? That is the mourning and weeping of eternal hell.
Why does he count a woe? I mean, it's fun to enjoy life and laugh it up a little bit, right? So why the woe? Because you will mourn and weep. Your best life is right now. And then eternal hell will be a place of constant mourning and weeping. Not over your sin, not over your, you know, how good God is. No, no. <laughs> Anger and disappointment, kicking yourself. Darkness and pain and loneliness. Jesus speaks of hell more than any other person in the whole biblical record. And in that place, he has said, and we'll say in the book of Luke as we come to it time and time again, here's one example in Luke 13, verse 28. He says very directly as his ministry continues to go on, He's going to be done with metaphor, and he's going to get very direct, and he says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the heart of a false disciple, the attitude of a, of a false disciple towards his own belief, uh, abilities before God, he's spiritually rich, he's spiritually satisfied, he's spiritually laughing, he's just fine before God. And when you are not interested, listen, when you're not interested in eternity, really, and there's no fear of God before you, then you will not be, then you will be very interested in now. You will be. And there will be plenty of not fear of God, but there will be a whole lot of fear of man. Man can take stuff from you. And that leads me to a final manifestation. Do you remember that the blessed man has an attitude which bursts forth in light to the world, right? And leads to persecution. Well, the false disciple has an attitude that we've just described that bursts forth with popularity before men. It shows itself with the fear of man and people-pleasing. Okay, so the cursed disciple, listen carefully, is then number four described as the popular. The popular. Who? Verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Pleasing everybody. A false disciple will choose popularity at the expense of being faithful to God. The fundamental attitude towards self and the things that that he desires, described in verses 24 and 25, that will pop out, that will manifest itself with the desire to please people above pleasing God. Now, you know, for the, the true disciple, we, we've seen our sin, we love Jesus, we, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. We get convicted over our sin and we're conflicted and we try to be fit in, but we can't and we lose friends and we're miserable over it and, and we struggle with people pleasing. That's not what I'm saying. That's the struggle. That's the heart. That's the spirit at work winning you off of this world and placing your hope on the future to come. That's a sign of life. If you struggle against people pleasing and the fear, and you want to fear God, you hate the fear of man, I get all of that. We need to let the Holy Spirit work in our lives and not ignore that in this sermon. Am I right? But that categorically, I'm not talking about you who struggle with this. We're talking about, we're talking about a false disciple who has not felt their sin and felt their need before God and has chosen popularity above God. 
And Jesus pronounces woe on these false disciples. The reason is given in verse 23. What does he say? For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So in the Old Testament, you got prophets and true prophets and false prophets, right? The true prophets would, would preach the word of God, would they not? The true prophets? And they'd get sawn in two, and they'd get thrown in pits, and they'd get placed in like mud up to their neck for weeks on end, and they'd get no converts, and they'd have no money, and they would have all this stuff. The false prophets in the past, they wanted to be popular with people. They didn't want to be rejected by men. They didn't, they didn't want to be left for dead. They wanted to be successful. They wanted their best life now. They wanted their finances. They wanted to have people pat them on the back and say, that was really good. That was really good. Thank you very much. They desi- and, and I think the Israelites would get that illustration perhaps more than we do. The illustration of the prophets knowing the Bible. But this is what he's trying to do. We've got false and true prophets. We've got false and true disciples, you crowd of disciples, listening to my words. Let's make a distinction here. Now listen, let me help you. How can you know then about discerning discipleship if you're then a true disciple? Living for the applause of people now so you don't hurt. If this is your pattern and purpose, this should be alarming for this is how false disciples manifest. Living for the glory of Jesus now, even when it hurts. If this is your pattern and purpose, this should be encouraging because this is how true discipleship manifests. People pleasing instead of fearing God can be a key litmus test. If you're, it's a chemical dip test task where you can see something, whoa, green and blue. It can be an, a litmus test for true and false discipleship. People-pleasing versus God-pleasing. How would you like to preach this sermon in this text? So the false disciple that Jesus pronounces pitiful woe upon is the one who is spiritually rich and satisfied now. He's done enough to establish his own righteousness. Surely he is a good guy that the Lord will accept at the end with no fear of God or really heavenly-mindedness. And because he doesn't have the fear of God and heavenly-mindedness, he's got earthly-mindedness big time now and he, to, to keep up with his pleasures and comforts. And in order to get there, he doesn't fear God, but he's got to please people. So he's got to be popular with the world. Which one are you? Look, this is, these are the words of Christ. He's pronouncing woes and blessing and that forever. Let's get this right. No, no, let's get this right. Don't sleep tonight until you get this settled and get this right. Get this right. Which one are you? He wants to help us this morning when he's preaching in his first lengthy recorded sermon in the book of Luke and the book of Matthew for that matter. These are his words. This is what he wants to do. He wants to help us. Let me press some points home here for the next 10 minutes. Let's press this home in the implications. Number, number one question that I reflected upon deeply in the last few weeks on this passage. What is happiness, really? What is happiness, really? 
This is a tremendously important question. Is your best life now according to this passage? I think every rational person, they may disagree with Jesus, but you cannot misunderstand. You may not believe in Jesus. You cannot misunderstand Jesus in this passage. So should you live for right now and just heap up treasures in this world because you're just going to be buried and go away into eternal nothingness? Well, that's not even the point of this passage, but that's certainly not what Jesus thinks. Should you, can you say that you have Jesus and live for yourself and establish your own righteousness and your own plan and purposes for your life and get to heaven? Certainly not if you believe this is the words of Christ and Christ is the answer. So I've been thinking a lot about this. Um, the 2021 Time Magazine Person of the Year is Elon Musk. It's ironic to me that in our world, the richest man in the world, I suppose that changes week in and week out, but the time, is the Person of the Year. It's ironic to me as I was preparing this sermon, seeing that title at Northwestern on the rack of the Time Magazine that the richest person in the world is the person of the year. Musk, I would like to meet him for a number of reasons. Very interesting fella. Doesn't own a home, apparently. I'm not sure about that, but don't quote me on any of this. He's interested in space travel. I mean, that's cool. Dreams of Mars and so on and so forth. He's a man who dreams to save our planet since we apparently, right, are destroying this one, and he dreams to get us to another He's been described by many as, here's a few descriptors, a clown, a genius, a visionary, an industrialist, and a showman. I'd like to meet him. Quotes from the article, the brooding, the brooding man-god who invents electric cars and moves to Mars, end quotes. One has said of him in the article, quotes, he wants eternal glory for doing great deeds. And he is an asset to the human race because he defines a great deed as something that is great for humanity. He is greedy for glory. Money to him is, is a means, not an end, end quotes. All I'm saying is that Musk has everything in this world. Is he, am I right? He has everything in this world, but what will be his end unless he repents? Robin Williams, you're familiar, right? Us old people are familiar with the comedian Robin Williams. He was a genius. He had money. He had fame. And what did that get him? Suicide in his closet. And some of us really old people can think of Michael Jackson and his sad story and think of Whitney Houston, probably the best voice that's ever sung. What was her end? Dear brothers and sisters, where do we find happiness now and forever? The blessed man, the happy man, is one who has been humbled before God and finds in Jesus Christ eternal joy. And understand the cursed man is the proud man before God. And he will be stuck with himself in eternal pain. Stuck with himself and his bad decision. These kinds of attitudes and actions the Lord of glory wants to bring apart. And I find ironic. Now listen, the world, the worldview of this world is completely opposite of our world. We talked about it in CE hour. But think about this passage. What does the world value? Rich, powerful, confident, popular people. All your business training, all of your strategies, everything's pushing towards that. The very exact type of people this world admires and praises are the ones that the Lord in pity and warning pronounces woe upon. A shocking passage. What is happiness 
really. Second question. What is valuable, really? I mean, we're such a mess. We have to ask these questions as believers. We've got to get reorientated according to the truth. What is valuable, really? Well, Jesus makes us think what is valuable in this passage now and forever. About 60 years ago, missionaries Jim Elliott, um, Pete Fleming, Ed McCauley, Nate Saint, Roger Eudorian, and their, their wives were ministering with them. But the men, in this case, were martyred for the sake of Jesus Christ in the far-off land of Ecuador. And they were killed by the Aka Indians whom they had spent years trying to break the soil of the gospel and bring the gospel to this people. And it was just a fluke. We know it's providential, but it's just a sad, sad, fluky story of how they ended up bloodied with spears coming out of their chest. Maybe a miscalculation, whatever it was, it went south with these Indians, and they had made such progress, and it seemed to end in, ab- in just tragedy and meaninglessness. It just seems like a waste at the time when their wives would see their husbands bleeding out into the river. What they think to themselves is what we've spent our life doing valuable. What a waste it would feel. That would be the flesh and the world, and their friends and everybody else. It's a waste. What is valuable anyways? They desired to, for people to be saved and they wanted to participate in the mission of Christ. It's their great joy. Will they be happy forever? Will Jim Elliott, is he happy right now? You know, if Elon Musk doesn't repent, is he going to be happy? What's valuable? Jim Elliott, just a great guy. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. Is he considered missionary work as a younger man? He said this, quotes, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. End quotes. So Jesus here teaches us what is most valuable. It is not what the world values. Teens, young adults trying to make a career, what the world values is completely opposite of what Jesus values. And when they seem to overlap, then they're redefined in the overlap. It's knocked off by the world. What is most valuable is spiritual riches found in Christ Jesus. What is most valuable is when the burden of your sin has been lifted. What is most valuable when Jesus says, Are you willing, Jesus? I am willing. I'm willing to touch you, the leper. Be cleansed of your sin. That is most valuable, knowing that your sin is gone. What is most valuable is that you've, at one point in your life, and hungered and thirst for righteousness, that you saw that in Jesus He's earned your righteousness and that He's willing to give you His pure robe of righteousness and that you realize it. I have it. My sins are gone. I'm covered in His righteousness. I'm a son of the Most High God. I have it. My future is set. It's okay how they treat me. It's okay what I lose. I'm set in Jesus. Oh, a happy day. Beat me up again. Oh, happy day. That is most valuable for Jesus. That was most valuable for Paul. Read about what his resume of persecution. And that was most valuable for all those who have eyes to see. What Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that 
which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It sounds like Paul was a true disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. To me, to live is Christ, he said, and to die is gain. Oh, but for the sake of you, I want to continue on, even though I'd rather see Christ. Am I the blessed or the cursed, according to Jesus? And I'm telling you, and believers, I've already given you your pep talk to get over yourself, repent of your people-pleasing, and move on with Christ. I'm not going to address you. I've addressed us. Listen to me. For some of us who are straddling the fence between two worlds, we want the world, we want Jesus. Well, you cannot have them both. Make your choice. Make your choice. If you, can't have, if you have a foot in both worlds, you're splitting the fence, I would just plead with you to get off the fence. Choose your allegiance Choose your ultimate joy. You got to choose. You got to choose like Moses did. Moses, according to the author of Hebrews in Hebrews eleven twenty four, said this: "By faith, it's always going to be. It's not going to be by works. It's always going to be by faith. By faith, Moses." When he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin, regarding the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So I would just plead with you, if the Holy Spirit is working in you, and you have been for some time now dissatisfied with the joys and the laughters and the pursuits of this world, and you're empty, and you're hurting, that's the Holy Spirit. He's making you dissatisfied with these things, and you're sick of pleasing people and pursuing all of that. It's time to put it aside. It's time to throw that on a pile all of that junk, all your sin, throw that on a pile and come empty and helpless to Jesus and say, save me, Christ. And I'm telling you on the authority of Scripture that if you from your heart call out to salvation from Him, today you will walk out of this door forgiven and righteous in Jesus Christ. Today is the day of your salvation. Matthew knows all about it, doesn't he? The context of this passage is Matthew, the tax collector, the horrible sinner. Jesus comes to him and says, Matthew, you got it all. You're rich. Follow me. And Matthew left it all behind and followed Christ. And was he all miserable about it? No, he threw a party. And the guest of honor was Jesus Christ because our joy starts right now. When you walk out the door, it might be hard, but your joy and your family's right here and your joy starts now and it's going to culminate beyond your brain can, that can handle for all eternity. And so I'd tell you to come, like Matthew of old, like Matthew and Jim Elliott, who are there maybe even talking at this moment, face to face at Christ's right hand where there are pleasures forevermore. No more tears, no more crying. They are not kicking themselves for the decision that they have made at all.